If you grab sermon notes today, you'll notice that there are blanks on them. Those are an attempt to help you stay engaged in listening. If you hate that, I'm really sorry. <laughs> too, too bad now. Matthew 13, starting with verse 44, we'll go through 52 today. Read with me. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and he buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore and sat down and sorted the good into containers, but threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 51, have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And he said to them, therefore, every scribe who has been trained for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. Would you guys pray with me? Lord, I pray that as the master of the house here, God, that we would bring out the treasures. We would recognize the truth of your word from long ago and what you're revealing right now, how you're teaching and leading right now. Lord, give us grace as your people to hear what we would need to hear today. Lord, um, I pray for humility, for understanding. As Jesus would put it, Lord, I pray for ears to hear. And I, I pray for that for myself as well today. In your name, amen. So these are some of Jesus' shortest parables that we find. I mean, they're just a couple of sentences, a couple of things about them. And maybe at first reading, I mean, you could go real fast right through these verses. Um, but I wanted to slow down because there's, there's literally treasure here to find. And so I think to help us with our understanding, we're going to go and kind of look at them a bit out of order. We're going to tackle four of them. We're going to go one, two, and four, and then look at the third parable towards the end. And we're going to deal then first with the man who finds treasure in a field, the merchant who is in search of great of a pearl of great price, and a homeowner who comes and displays old and new treasure. And then the parable of the net we'll look at last. So what's the common theme? That's what, that's what I want us to think through on the three chapter or, uh, parables, one, two, and four. What's the common theme here? The treasure in the field, the pearl, the homeowner. What do these things have in common? Well, there is a treasure for them. A treasure of exceeding worth. So if I told you that I had an envelope with $10 million in it, that would never happen. But if I told you that I did, and I said, I've got $10 million in it, and I will trade it to you for everything you own. Now, I'm not talking about family and people. I'm not talking about that. I'm just talking about physical belongings, material things. If I had a $10 million, so I'll trade you for everything. What would you do? Well, for probably all of us, we would take that deal. We'd say, sure, 
I don't, everything that I own does not equal $10 million because we have a good idea of the value of what we have. So I'd make that deal. Now, have you guys seen the show Deal or No Deal? It's like that. James likes this. We, we played some uh, the, the video games with the tickets and stuff, and he kills it on that thing. He's good at this game. You'd be awesome. If, if I was going to go, I'd put you in my place, buddy, because you're good at this game. But in that game, you guys know how it goes. There's a bunch of briefcases, and it has different money amounts from, you know, zero up, all the way up to a million. And uh, there, there are there, – you have to guess, right? So the contestant has a briefcase – and constantly as they go, they have to eliminate different briefcases. And as they do, they're trying to eliminate the ones with the smaller money amounts so that they keep the bigger ones to the end so they have more of a chance of winning a lot of money, all of that. Now, in the middle of the game, as they go, there's this guy up in a booth called the banker, and he tries to make deals with the contestant. So if the contestant is eliminating small money amounts, that means the bigger ones are still there, which means there's a better chance of him winning a lot of money. So the banker will try to make a deal to get him to take less than he possibly might win. You guys understand this concept, right? So the hardest part is really just chance. It's, well, just eliminate these briefcases and hope that they don't have the million dollars in it or hope that they don't have the big numbers, 250000 100000 And that's the hardest part of the game is you try to figure out which ones don't have the big money in it. Think about this parable, or these three parables, in terms of that show for a second. The guy's here, the merchant, the person who found it in the field, the, um, the homeowner, they all surely have earthly stuff, right? They probably have a home. Um, they probably have some kind of belongings. They may have livestock. They may have land. They surely have clothing, other valuables. But each of them, they saw the ultimate treasure and immediately knew that its value surpassed everything else that they owned. And without hesitation, they sold it to get the treasure. This is key to our understanding of where we go today. It's as if they knew which briefcase held the million dollars in it. And they were completely content to take, let every other briefcase be taken away because they knew where the real treasure was. Everything else that they might own or stand to gain, they gave up because of the worth of the treasure that they found. Now, last week, John uh, talked about the kingdom of heaven, and he explained what that was. And that, it, was it was pretty helpful to our understanding of where we go. And he said that the kingdom of heaven is really any place where the Spirit of the Lord is, where Jesus is. I think Jesus spells this out pretty clearly, too, at the beginning of Mark. As soon as he starts preaching... He says, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I'm here. Right? This is what he's saying. This is what the kingdom of heaven means. It's any place where the spirit of the Lord is. Now, the kingdom of heaven is a stark contrast to the kingdoms of Jesus' day. Now, what was, uh, what was the biggest power, earthly power in Jesus' day? It was Rome. Right? A powerful an influential earthly kingdom had to assert itself to stay that way. You guys get this. We know this from history. Uh, it would have to be, and we see this in Rome especially, I mean, it would have to be brutal, ruthless in battle, take no prisoners kind of a thing. It would have to continually show itself as dominant over every other nation 
And it would have to make opposing nations power and fear. That was the point of crucifixion, wasn't it? To instill fear in the subjects of the kingdom. But the kingdom of heaven is different. Instead of being ruthless, Jesus says you show kindness and freely forgive people that hurt you. Instead of seeking dominance, you seek to serve others and to put their needs above your own. And instead of manipulating through fear, you show love to your enemy. This, this kind of teaching in Jesus' day was earth-shattering. No one understood this. It was strange to their thinking. And you guys get it. It's still revolutionary today. Because this is not the general sense of who we are as people. We don't naturally forgive someone for hurting us. That is not in a normal, everyday person. That's only in Christians, bought by the blood of Christ, who know that they have been forgiven much, and so they then forgive much as well. The kingdom of heaven is very, very different from any earthly kingdom or power, except I think maybe with one exception, and it's this. The kingdom of heaven completely alters the way conquered people think. I'll say that again. It completely alters the way conquered people think. We know that when Jerusalem was captured in like uh, 605 B.C. by the Babylonians, um, you guys remember this in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they brought these people in and they tried to assimilate them into their culture, didn't they? We see that pretty quickly. They changed their diet. Um, they changed their names. They attempt to teach them to worship the gods of Babylon. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was setting himself up as a god, demanding that they worship him. That's what caused the whole fiery furnace incident. The Babylonians wanted to change the way that they thought so they wouldn't be like they were before. They would be like they wanted them to be. The truth is, when you've been conquered by the love of God, you're never the same either. And that's the point. The kingdom of heaven it changes, alters the way conquered people think in that way. You talk differently. Christians, you act differently. You think differently. Your goals are different. Your passions in life, what you spend your time and money and focus your family on, are different in the kingdom of heaven. Under that rule, it has to be different. Your whole outlook on life changes because you're a part of a new heavenly kingdom. So I'm getting to the point here. The true treasure referred to in these parables is the thing that heaven itself is concerned with. Christ himself. Colossians 2 verse 3 says, In whom, talking of Christ, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are. The kingdom of heaven, the treasure of heaven, is Jesus Christ himself. And I think we'll see that as we continue on today. Because we know that the one man in the parables... He just stumbled upon this treasure in the field. And another man, he was actively searching. He was the merchant going after the pearls. He was looking for a pearl of great price. Isn't this still how it happens today? I was thinking about that this week. This is still how it happens in our, in our time. Some folks, saved by God's grace, seem to be searching for truth. And in God and his mercy, they find it in Christ. But then there are other people who are saved by grace that just seemed kind of to stumble upon it. 
um, maybe even while actively trying to avoid God. And I was um, here Monday of this week, and Liz, uh, someone called while we were um, getting ready for church last Sunday, and they said, hey, could we come up and uh, look in your food pantry? We need, we're in need of some things. And so Liz answered the phone and said, well, I'll come pick you up tomorrow. And so she brought him over, and we talked to him. And in the course of that, Liz is sharing kind of some of her testimony. And I wanted to have her come up and just share real briefly about how it fits into this. Because Liz will tell you, and she's going to right here, she can tell you she wasn't looking for God. Um, I'll let you finish that, Liz. No, just. I wasn't looking for God. Matter of fact, I was as far as going away from him as possible. And God's got a sense of humor. He sent Trish and me to fix my cat. I couldn't afford to get the cat fixed. Get her off my back. You know, she kept inviting me to church. I don't really got a lot of them. You know. And she kept inviting me to church. And I came to church just to appease her. And I, I'm, I'm sorry, but I was third generation. I had like this. And so just because I love Trish, I love her husband. And they kept praying for me. And they kept saying, come on, go to church. Come on, go to church. Okay. I'll sit there, you know. And I heard about the love of God. And I seen what the church was really doing. And I mean, reaching out to people. That lady, the reason I thought so much of her, she was buying those uh, roller skates for kids and taking them down to St. Louis, down to Skid Row and all that, and doing stuff like that. They was reaching out to people. And showing love to their pastor. And I found out I needed Christ. I was going to go in front of the Holy God. And here I was. I couldn't even believe what holy was. You know, it's set apart. It is so special. And here you got one of the worst sinners possibly to work about. Maybe many times. <laughs> but God forgave me. I took God on his word. That's all I got to stand on. He said, trust me. But he took my sins. And I will not be condemned. Because all of us are going to die someday. We're down to the little ones, to the older ones. It doesn't matter. We're going to die. But Jesus, he went for anybody that Lord, I pray for 
church leaders, the mental church there. Lord, they will say, Lord, they say, concentrate on you. And Lord, I'm asking for the men and the women of this church as well. Lord, to stay true to you, to your word. They stay focused in your word, Lord, your blessings. And Lord, I'm asking on these names, and I know you will listen. Amen. According to me, in Jesus' name. It's what Liz shared, she shared with an individual on Monday. She said that very thing. I wasn't looking for God. I was going the opposite direction. I've heard some of your all's testimonies, and it's similar. I know John Bateman has said that was the case for him as well. And here's the cool thing that I see in, in this text. Both for those who are searching and for those who are surprised, the kingdom of heaven is something worth losing everything for. It doesn't matter if you're like the merchant searching for pearls. If you find Christ, you found the treasure. It doesn't matter if you're stumbling through a field and find the treasure. Maybe you weren't even looking for it. If you found Christ, you found the treasure. And these, the men in these parables, they find this truth out quickly. Look at verse 44. This is a, a key part of this text. Chapter 13, verse 44. It says, then in his joy, second part of this verse, then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has, and buys that field. See, something inside this man changed at that point. At what point? The point that he found the treasure. As soon as he realized its worth, its value, his life dramatically changed. The goals of his life dramatically changed. Where he was headed, what he was going to spend his money on, what his family was going to be doing, it changed in an instant. Listen to this uh, quote. This is a book by John Piper called In Our Joy. It says, 15 minutes before his discovery in the field, the, the thought of selling all that he owned would have seemed unwise to the man, even excruciating. But 15 minutes afterward, he was off to do it with joy. What made the difference? The treasure. This man suddenly found something that transformed his whole outlook on life. It restructured his priorities. It altered his goals. His values changed. The treasure revolutionized this man. There was a cost to obtain, obtaining the treasure. Viewing it one way, it was a high cost. Imagine being his neighbor. You would have been bewildered, bewildered as you watched him liquidate his assets. You might have questioned him. You might have warned him against the risk of endangering his family. You might have talked to other neighbors wondering if the man was going bonkers. You would have been puzzled at his joy. But viewing it another way, the cost was very small. Really, the man was wise. Standing there in the field, he did a quick cost-benefit analysis. It didn't take much time to realize that selling all of his possessions was going to make him wealthy beyond his wildest dreams. What he did might have appeared foolish at first, but in reality, the benefits so far outweighed the cost that he would have been foolish not to sell everything. It doesn't matter the cost. 
this man, he suddenly realizes that all he owns is worthless and meaningless if he doesn't obtain this treasure. All that he possesses, his good name, his reputation, his worldly substance and goods, even life itself, all have to be given up for the sake of the treasure. Everything changes at this point. Guys, all that we possess, our good name, our reputation, our worldly substance, even our lives, may have to be given up for the sake of the true treasure, Christ. Turn to Philippians, if you would, with me. Philippians chapter 3. Philippians chapter 3, starting with verse 7. These will be familiar words of Paul to you, probably. Philippians 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the, from the dead. Mark 8.35 says, Whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Church, hear these words today. The treasure that is the kingdom of heaven is the person of Jesus and his Gospel. This is the treasure that when we find it, everything else in our life must align under it. And we receive it with joy. Enjoy that man went and sold his, everything that he had to buy the field. Continuing on in the book, In Our Joy, by John Piper, says, I cannot be otherwise. It cannot be otherwise. Jesus came into the world with good news, not bad news. He doesn't call us to a willpower religion that feels only duty and no delight. He calls us to himself and to his Father. Therefore, he calls us to joy. Of course, it's not joy in things. Jesus is not preaching a health, wealth, and prosperity gospel. It is joy in God and in his son. See, when confronted with the worth of the true treasure, the only appropriate response is to give up everything, to forsake it all, and to seek after it, to go after it. This is going to mean giving up your worldly desires, your ungodly relationships, your bad habits, in order to run after Jesus. It's going to take some sacrifice. It will. Jesus never pulled any punches about that. That's something that oftentimes is lost in our gospel preaching today. We package it in nice little ribbon and bow and say, God's going to make your life so much better if you receive Christ. And while that's true, that's not the fullness of the gospel. Because the fullness of the gospel that Jesus preached is discipleship. Follow me, he says. And you're going to have to give it all up in order to do so. This sometimes is going to look ridiculous to our friends. I know if you have talked with my wife and her testimony at all, uh, she, she lost all but one friend when she came to Christ. None of the others wanted anything to do with the Lord. It's going to look silly 
some of your friends. You might even be ridiculed for it. You'll probably be misunderstood. Some of them will probably even try to talk you out of it. But if God has saved you, you will persevere. You will not be deterred. And Christian, for those of you who are already saved, this means something else. This means constantly and continually affirming that Jesus is the most valuable thing in your life. Because we get caught up in so many lesser things in this world. So many lesser things. He's more valuable than our worldly possessions. He's more valuable than our reputation. He's more valuable than the pleasures of sin even. He's even more valuable to us than family, than your blood, brothers and sisters. Just a couple of weeks we talked about this. Jesus said, who are my brothers and sisters? My father, my mother. And he pointed to those who were following him, not his earthly family. We have to constantly affirm that Jesus is the most valuable and worthy thing in our life, more than anything. We rightly cast down the fleeting pleasure of sin only when we have a higher affection for Jesus. Consider Moses for a second with me. Hebrews 11 says, talks about Moses, Old Testament saints who had faith. But consider Moses with me. He had everything he wanted in Egypt, didn't he? He had a luxurious life. He had all the amazing food he could eat want, the fortune that he couldn't even spend as much as he had, all the friends, the women, the finest clothes. He had it all by earthly standards. And yet he walked away from everything. Why? Why would he do that? Hebrews 11 tells us, verses 24 through 26 says, By faith Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for the reward. Do you see what Moses caught a glimpse of? He saw, he saw Christ, didn't he? I don't pretend to understand how that all works, how he knew that, how he saw it. But he caught a glimpse of the eternal pleasure that is Christ. And it caused him to walk away from the fleeting pleasures in Egypt. My prayer is that we would look to Christ and do the same. Look back in Matthew chapter 13. Verse 51 and 52, Jesus addresses his disciples just to make sure that they understand what he's saying. And he says, do you get all these things? They say, yes. He says, you know, a scribe is someone who studies and knew the scriptures well. Oftentimes they, they weren't real, looked real highly upon by Jesus because they had wrong understanding of who he is and what his word was. But they knew the scriptures well, and they were both a student of them and a teacher of the law. Um, Jesus says that they were trained for the kingdom of heaven because of this. They're like the master of a house who brings out of his treasure what is new and what is old. And I'd like to propose to you that the old treasures are the prophecies and truths from their scriptures, the Old Testament. These things that were true from the beginning are still true today. They are a treasure, an old treasure. The new treasures are the secrets of the Old Covenant that are now revealed in Jesus, who was with them now. He was walking with them, revealing new treasures to them here on earth. The Old Testament 
I've mentioned this several weeks ago. The Old Testament is full of arrows. Right? They're pointing where? To Christ. To Jesus. Right? John faithfully talked about this in the book of Exodus and Daniel and other Old Testament books. He said, look, where do we see Jesus in this? We've looked forward. This is, this is a, a type. This is where a, an arrow is, he would say. And he's right. Every Old Testament story contains Jesus, and we need to be looking for him and looking for those arrows. Uh, Spurgeon has said this, Don't you know that from every town and every village and every hamlet in England, wherever it may be, there's a road that leads to London? So from every text in Scripture, there's a road that leads to the great metropolis, Jesus. Every Old Testament story, Moses, Abraham, Jacob, Isaac, Noah, they're all pointing forward to Christ because he's the treasure, because he's the most valuable thing. He's got the most worth of anything. Now look at verses 47 through 50. This is the the parable of the net. Okay? The type of fishing net that this is probably referring to is is a a long, rectangular kind of thing. They walk out into the water, I don't know, maybe chest deep, and and throw it out, and then they grab the ends and they walk up the shore, grabbing, you know, catching any fish that were in this kind of a net. They'd be dragged that way. And it says that they got fish of every kind. Then the fishermen would sit down, and they would take the good fish that they wanted out and set them aside. And what would they do with the bad fish? Stole them away. Just get rid of them. Um, the way that they put it here is they would sort them out, and they'd throw away the bad. they just they just get rid of them. So look at the, the explanation of this. It's pretty clear. He says, so the net is the gospel, I think. We could say the net is the gospel that goes out. The sea is the world. The fish are people, and the fishermen, as it says, are angels. Now, this has the same meaning that the parable of the weeds did a couple weeks ago, maybe even last week. And it's this. At God's appointed time, which only he himself knows, judgment day is coming. He will come. He will return. And on that day, all those who are found in Christ will be saved from God's righteous eternal wrath. And all those who have rejected Jesus will reap what their lives have sown. They'll be thrown into the fiery furnace, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Guys, Jesus isn't just teaching moralistic behavior modification here. This isn't just make your life better by changing your behavior and following these rules, and then God's going to, you know, save you and work out this heaven thing all in the end. This is not what Jesus is teaching. He's teaching that there is a real place that individuals spend eternity without God and without hope. Should we be surprised when so many people spend their lives avoiding God, rejecting the truth of the gospel, and treasuring earthly things over him? That this is the case? That this happens? This is the quote from David Platt that Pastor Jason mentioned. The dragnet of God's judgment is moving slowly through the sea of mankind. And one day soon, he'll draw all men to the shores of eternity for final separation to their ultimate destiny in either everlasting life or eternal death. If you've listened to this message and maybe you don't understand what has been said or like clarification, please don't leave before talking with the church member of Ramsey Creek or with one of our leaders. Our church, Ramsey Creek, exists to glorify God. 
right? That's what we're here, that's what we're about. And his glory is seen so clearly when hurting people find rest in their souls through salvation in Christ. Don't leave without understanding this. Christian, this idea of the dragnet silently being pulled through eternity, throughout time, should be a sober reminder to us to confidently and urgently spread the message of the kingdom. We're not promised tomorrow. Your coworker that you know is without Christ is not promised tomorrow. The fact that Jesus is coming and that there is a place of eternal separation with God that is not going to be pleasant should sober us and remind us to go, to get on with it, to get on mission and share the gospel with the good news. How many of you guys have heard of Homer's uh, Iliad and Odyssey books, really Greek poetry? And I will confess, I have not read much of them at all. They are not easy to work through because written in such a language that is hard for us to get. Um, but there's some, some interesting, there's an interesting illustration that I wanted to talk to you about today in regards to um, the Odyssey book and then also another one that was written called Argonautica. I uh, forget who wrote, who wrote that. But they're similar um, genres, Greek kind of um, poetry, that sort of thing. Anyway, you, you know some of the story of the Odyssey. There's a character named Odysseus in, in this story. And he is described as uh, a cunning guy. He's, he's very clever. Um, he's very brave. Uh, but maybe not the most trustworthy at times. And as part of his travels, he, he had to go through a section of water where sirens were. You guys know what sirens were in Greek mythology? They were, they're kind of like mermaids. Um, if you've seen Pirates of the Caribbean movie, there's some in there. Um, there's actually some in one of the Ice Age movies, kids, if you saw one of that. Um, but they're, they're sirens, and they're like mermaids, and they were outwardly very beautiful. And what they would do is they would sing this song that would lure sailors in. They would hear it, and they'd be captivated. And they would promise, the sirens would promise the deepest desires of the sailors' hearts. And they would turn their ships to go be close to the sirens, and they would crash on the rocks and be drowned and killed every time. And so Odysseus knew he was going to have to be going through this section of water, and so he had a plan. Right? He had this plan. And he made all of his shipmates, his sailors, they, they had to stuff their ears with wax so that they couldn't hear. He didn't want them to be lured in to the song of the sirens. But see, his cleverness, his wandering heart, if you will, wanted to hear the song of the sirens. And so he had his shipmates tie him to the mast of the boat. And he told them before they got there, he said, no matter what I say, do not untie me. Do not go where I tell you. You keep going on the course that we've set. Do not change course no matter what I tell you. And so they did. They stuffed their ears with wax and they went by the sirens. And he, Odysseus, heard the beautiful sounds of these sirens. And he wanted in his heart, the the text says, which I forget, but the text says, had he been able to at all, he would have broke free from his tethers and steered the ship straight to destruction. But he was confined by the rope. 
Now you think, that's a clever way to avoid that. But there's a different way that uh, a character named Jason in Argonautica does. And uh, he knows, he's warned, hey, you're going to have to go by this part of the sea. So take this other man with you. Uh, he was told to take Orpheus with him. Orpheus played the harp, or a, a lyre, I think. Um, we'll just say harp for this instance. But he said, take Orpheus with you. So they get going. They don't have any wax in their ears. They're going by the sirens, and they start to hear the sound of the siren song. They start to hear all of these things being offered to them, the beauty of them, the alluring nature of the sirens, and they want to start going that, that way. And it's at that moment that Orpheus picks up his harp, and he starts playing this tune that is so captivating that the sailors don't even hear the sound of the sirens anymore. They're so captivated by the sound of his harp and the wonderful playing of, of Orpheus that they don't want what the sirens are offering. And they sail by unscathed. Both ships were safe. But did you notice the difference on the approach of how danger was avoided? Here's, here's the point. Uh, I'll make the point here. As we walk through this life, whenever temptation is waging war on us, will we be like Odysseus, outwardly rejecting but inwardly craving the pleasures of sin? Or will we be like Jason, so captivated by the beauty and glory of Jesus Christ that sin no longer looks good to us anymore? See, this is the question that we wrestle with today, that I wrestle with today. Are you, am I, are we so consumed with the love and passion for Christ that the siren songs of temptation are no longer alluring? That's the question. Oh, that God would grant us grace to say, like the Father in Mark 9, I believe, help my unbelief. See, the trick is not just to cover our ears and our eyes so we can't see and hear the world and its temptations. That's not the answer to this problem. Our desire instead as Christians should be becoming more and more and more captivated by the beauty of our Savior. If we're honest with ourselves at all, we have to realize that this is difficult for us as believers and downright impossible for the unbeliever. Remember, Jesus says, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. Why is this so? Well, it's not hard because Jesus is a cruel taskmaster. It's hard because the world is a hard place to enjoy Jesus above everything else. It's just hard. So how do we, how do we raise our affections for Jesus? How do we become captivated by the beauty and worth of Jesus Christ? I think... The best place to start is just to recognize, in fact, the fact that Jesus is already beautiful. He already is that. Our job isn't to make him look that way. He's beautiful whether we admit it or not. He's lovely no matter how we make him look. His beauty cannot be distorted by what we do. Praise God for that. Because otherwise, Jesus would look very selfish 
and weak and unfaithful and every other horrible example of him that I portray every day. Jesus is beautiful already. And just like the men who gave all for the treasure that they've found, we have to understand that Jesus is more valuable than anything and everything else. He's just better. How do we do this? It's not really a gospel call if I tell you the truth but don't call you to respond. And so here's how we respond to this. What do we do? How do we recognize this? The first thing I think would be just to let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Dwell in me richly. There's currently no better place to see Jesus clearly than in his word. There's no better place. Read it. Study it. Devour it. Live it. The word reveals Jesus to us. Let it dwell in you richly. Secondly, pray. This is, we're no stranger to this. We know Christians are supposed to pray. We see Jesus do it. The disciples do it. Other Christians do it. But is it possible that we don't have a passion for Jesus because we really haven't sought him out in prayer? Is it possible that our time with the Lord is focused on earthly things? It's not wrong to pray for physical healing. I believe that we should do that oftentimes. But it shouldn't dominate our time with the Lord. Because God is so much more than a healer. He is, but he's more. The Savior, Redeemer, Friend, Father. The list goes on and on and on. Keep asking in prayer for God to stir your affections for Jesus. Thirdly, surround yourself with people that see the beauty of Jesus. And I, I really just kind of invite you to look around for a second or when we're, when we're leaving here, just look at the people in this room. This is who this is talking about. Surround yourself with brothers and sisters that are here and others that have a passion for Jesus. Because I, I truly believe that this sort of thing is contagious. If you've ever been around somebody, and there are several people like this in our church, that you say, oh man, they say, you have a conversation, and they say, how are you doing? And you answer, and you say, well, I'm doing good, but you know, God's really taking me through this trial. And they say, brother, sister, I love you. Let's stop and pray right now. There's people here that do that. And it's, it's kind of convicting sometimes if that's not how you normally operate. And you, oh, oh, yeah, okay, let's pray. Thanks. But it makes you want to be the same way, right? I think it should. Passion for Jesus is contagious. When, when you see someone on fire for the Lord, serving God, reading their word, engaged in their relationships with family and friends, sharing the gospel boldly, you you got to step back and say, wow, God, make me like that. Surround yourself with people who have a passion for Jesus, a passion for desiring more of him, a passion for the beauty of Jesus, because it's contagious. They'll, want to, they'll make you want to do the same. Fourthly, preach the gospel to yourself. This seems almost cliche, and I'm sorry if you think that, um, but when you get up, Preach the gospel to yourself. Because if you're a believer, you know the good news already. Consider who God is. Consider who you are. Consider who Christ is. Consider what he's done. Consider your response to that. All of these things. If your life, if you are gospel-saturated, 
your affections for Jesus will undoubtedly grow. If you are preaching the gospel to yourself, Lord, thank you for this trial. I, I know that in it you have great things planned. You're going to teach me so much about how to become like Jesus more through this. If we're gospel-saturated in this kind of a way, we're going to have more affection for Christ. We're going to see his beauty. And lastly, although this list isn't exhaustive, but lastly, if we want to recognize his worth more and more, no matter your circumstances, worship. When you recognize Jesus as the true treasure, that you should give up all to search after, worship him, seek him. When you see Jesus as the point of heaven, the purpose of heaven, the purpose of heaven is not a perfect body. The purpose of heaven is not being free of pain. The purpose of heaven is not getting to see lost loved ones. The purpose of heaven is worshiping Christ. And so when we see that as the point, the natural, maybe not natural, but the right response is worship. And when we see Jesus as more beautiful, more worthy, more valuable than the fleeting pleasures of sin of this life, worshiping, the appropriate response to the all-surpassing worth of Christ is this, worship. Set your mind on things above. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Preach the gospel to yourself each day. This is how, like the men who saw the true treasure and gave it all up for the real thing, gave everything else up for the real treasure, this is how we do the same, brothers and sisters. We don't just hang around the outside hoping to catch a glimpse of sin, knowing that God's going to forgive us like Orpheus did. Odysseus, rather. But instead, like Jason, we listen to the beauty that is Christ. We fill our minds, we fill our homes, we fill our church with a passion for Christ and a regular understanding of his word, of his worth, and that causes us to worship. That causes us to love. That causes us to pursue him with passion. And that's our prayer. We're going to do this today and sing a couple more songs. I asked Jacob and the worship team to lead a couple songs that hopefully will shape our minds to think in this way. So you guys come on up. Songs that call us to give up the fleeting pleasures of this world, the things of this earth that are insignificant in comparison. And so, as I've said, the right response to recognizing the worth of Christ is to worship Let's stand and let's do that together. Let's worship.